0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the January edition of the Third Friday's podcast. New year, new us, new pod. Uh, First of the year. Uh, It's been more than a couple of years of doing this. And the funny thing is, is every time I bring this guest back on the show for a podcast, I get so much love that I want to get him back on. So this is like a double dose of a little major Monday everybody here. We are live from the Kill Room with my guest, Christopher Major. Do you like saying your own name? How I do that not. Mean? No, I don't care. I don't, ca- I I don't, <laughs> I don't care on for purpose. it. It's, it's uh, a good
1: thing to put your podcast guests on their heels right at the outset. yeah, make them feel super <laughs> comfortable
0: because uh, what we're going to get into is a little bit more of a 201 level discussion of the Civil Team podcast or, or webinar really uh, that occurred earlier this week, right? So, Uh, Can you say maybe in two or three sentences, I know it's very tough for you, Very. what the 101 level webinar was earlier this week? So it's it's about a very
1: uh, hot-button topic in the world of workers' comp, Uh, the interaction with New York's no-fault law. And there's that $50,000 carve-out that every adjuster has had to deal with at some point. Uh, And the context of the webinar was... You know, number one, ways around that, how to cope with it, uh, and number two, loss transfer, how we can get that fifty thousand back in some instances.
0: So let let me play the shoes of of your average, uh, you know, risk professional or adjuster, right? Uh, because what happens is a third party plaintiff attorney is going to come to me and say, uh, motor vehicle accident, fifty thousand dollars, and I think it's actually quite reasonable for them to listen to that because it's. Supplemented with like statutes and case law that we don't get the first fifty thousand dollars back, right? Would you say that's a fair uh, memorialization of, of how the that situation plays out at first? For sure, and I, I mean especially because as
1: you know, workers' compensation defense counsel, we frequently wield the workers' compensation law as our own personal sword. You know, the knowledge of the workers' compensation law is your best chance at prevailing over an ignorant claimant's attorney. And unfortunately, it does us in. In this instance, Section Twenty Nine, the Subrogation Statute in New York, uh, literally has a subsection, two subsections actually, one A and two A, that say no fifty thousand dollar lien in motor vehicle
0: accident cases. We could get a little bit philosophical. Why? Why would the legislature, you know, put this as a put this out there? Why would they carve this out, so to speak? So
1: this is a uh, this is kind of. A, a little ethereal kind of topic. Essentially, it comes down to the injured worker becoming their own self-insurer. So, let's say they get uh, let's say they get in a motor vehicle accident, right? And they have their first 50, they have their fifty thousand dollars in basic economic loss coverage, and that's where the fifty thousand dollar carve out comes from. Uh, but the workers' compensation carrier is paying benefits in lieu of first party benefits because workers' comp is primary to no fault but they're entitled let's say there's no 50k carve out right and they're entitled to get they're they're entitled to a lien on that money well then what exactly is the claimant's no fault coverage right he he gets hurt but he that fifty thousand dollars that he would get in comp the comp carrier gets back from his third party settlement so for that first fifty thousand dollars that no fault is intended to cover the claimant is a self-insurer and there's court of appeals cases out there there was one uh matter of Granger v erda I believe it was that uh, even drew to the attention this harsh unintended result is how they phrased it but that was that was the problem that the legislature needed to address
0: so I, I can kind of understand <clears throat> that on a granular level right but to me the problem is is really based on the fact that you know what if, what if you have the workers' compensation claim filed to really prevent the claimant from being his own insurer or or a self-insurer of his own treatment, really, because that's what you're saying, right? You know, the more contemporaneous and immediate treatment is so important to the claimant in a motor vehicle accident, right? And we don't want him to be self-selecting or be responsible for that treatment, him or her, right? But if the worker's compensation claim is filed, Mm -hmm. right, you now have a primary entity to pay for treatment, and that's where I think the, I guess, the, the, foundational reason for coming up with this statute kind of falls away spiritually from a practical application of, of a certain type of case. Does that make sense at all?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, it just, what it comes down to at the end of the day, though, is this this first $50,000 is intended to apply without fault, hence no fault, right? So they don't want insurance companies bickering over the extent of liability or who's on the hook for payment or anything anything of that nature. So the fact that the claimant would then be in this situation of saying well now now wait a minute if if i if i go out of work i may get two thousand dollars per month under no-fault coverage through workers comp but then they're just going to get it back from my third-party settlement so what no-fault coverage do i actually have it kind of it kind of makes sense you know but i mean there's still the cost of litigation reduction and everything but I, i i see what you're saying that if they're if they're being compensated and if they're receiving necessary medical treatment from a claim they themselves filed, you know the only issue is we represent carriers, and you know as, when it comes to carriers, them's the brakes. <laughs> I think
0: that I think that it has some kind of, you know, um, application in, in a typical course where right, you know, we, we don't want people fighting over payment to prevent the rendering of treatment, but if there is no issue with the rendering of treatment, then I think it's okay to actually have discussions over which carrier should be liable and which should be reimbursed because uh, you don't really face the reasons why the loss transfer uh, carve out is is really applicable but let's let's get into it I mean that's that's really a topic you know for our uh, you know next year's podcast where we see if there's anything moving in that uh, philosophical uh, direction but with loss transfer, what we want to go after is two different things, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, but either we look for pieces of that initial 50000 that can actually be reimbursable through Section 29 or the actual loss transfer transfer arbitration recovery itself, right?
1: Right. So it's it, the best way to uh, think of it and the way that I typically explain it is you have two different kitties of recovery. If loss transfer applies, uh, which, you know, 6,500 pounds unladen, any vehicle in the accident, over 6,500 pounds unladen, or uh, a livery vehicle, principally for hire for the transportation of people or property, if loss transfer applies, you have a direct right of recovery, a separate right of recovery distinct from Section 29 against the third-party defense carrier which ordinarily would not exist. And you can haul them into arbitration after you serve the intercompany reimbursement notification and go after it that way. Uh, so that's your, that's, that's, that's kitty numero uno, right? Your are 50,000 via this separate right of recovery under loss transfer. Then anything that's not subject to the carve out. And so in excess of 50 uh, or in excess of $2,000 per month in indemnity or indemnity paid more than three years after the date of loss, all of that's section 29 money, so you're getting back your approximate two-thirds on it. So there's lean on third party settlement, and then there's the $50,000 arbitration claim is the best way to look at it.
0: Right. So let's maybe let's start with the actual recovery uh, through loss transfer arbitration and, and all that. right? Would you say it's a good idea for carriers to maybe use that $50,000 number as almost like a trigger or an alert to say, now I should go pursue, loss transfer? Or is there a better way for carriers to come to us and say, like, this is now the point where I need you to go recover these funds through loss transfer?
1: Well, I, uh, I, I hate to do this. I'm going to steal your own phrase here. Uh, defend from day one, right? Counter so there's, one. <laughs> so there's, there's no time like the present. Uh, the thing is the intercompany reimbursement notification form literally has a box that says preliminary or final. And the time to demand loss transfer, I mean, bear in mind, you're dealing with a three-year statute of limitations on the payment. So you got you got time. But there's absolutely zero reason, whereas with a third-party settlement, you might end up waiting two years over the course of litigation. You don't have to wait for any of that with loss transfer. So if it applies, there's zero reason to not serve the... Intercompany reimbursement notification. And that's
0: where, like, you know, we work together really well because it kind of like set you up, like almost like you toss <laughs> it up. It lands on the tee perfectly and you knock it out of the park. Because really, what I'm going after is, you know, even a nominal amount uh, incurred by the workers' compensation carrier before we even get to 50, right? Think about a decision from the reimbursing carrier where they are asked to, to say, here, give me $50,000 or give me $5,000, right? Which are they more likely to just say, here's a check, and like get, get out of the way for the rest of my life, right? They're probably more likely to, to reimburse you for the, the, the smaller amount, the $5,000, right? And, and you always have a better
1: chance of getting that because there's no loss transfer reimbursement for speculative payments. That's not covered under no fault. So while we might see a permanency award on the horizon, we can't claim anything until we pay it out. And so as a best practices point, the thing to do is you pay out more in comp, you get a new payment ledger, Hit them with the intercompany reimbursement notification.
0: Get that money back as you pay it. And that's kind of the the structure, right? So you get that initial payment back from that first service of uh, the loss transfer recovery request, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, intercompany. And then every future payment that you make, in, in, whether it's an interval or routine status or even just on a next payment status, you now have this check. That they've agreed that you have a right to be reimbursed and say, look, uh, you reimbursed me uh, six months ago. I now have this. So, like, we're not there yet, but here, this is my request. So, please filter it in. Whereas, if you wait for 50, right, or even wait till you have 250, or wait till the third party is settled, right, now it's just another uh, knot that we have to tie when it could be easier to do that in the beginning.
1: Right, and there's something to also be said for the admission of liability, even if it's implicit in that initial reimbursement. And you know, some of these companies will will think to themselves, we don't want to bicker over $5,000. So here it is, but, but nothing about this check is to be construed as an admission of liability. And you, you will see that happen, but the fact of the matter is that when it gets to, when and if it gets to arbitration, you can say, Uh, they kind of agreed that this case was subject to loss transfer under either of the provisions, the 6,500 pounds or the livery vehicle. It is something that you can bring up in support of your claim, that you've been getting reimbursed for this all along. And it's only now that a scheduled loss of use award showed up and that $30,000 more got dumped into a $15,000 claim that there's
0: an issue with it. Right. And thinking of it from a bottom line perspective, right, you know, like a, uh, checks and balances are really like a, a balance sheet, really is the correct term for it. Um, having early reimbursement on the file actually opens up another bucket of of money to play with if you can settle the case, if you can uh, you know, conserve litigation resources, or maybe even add on to more resources, whether they be for litigation on the comp side, maybe with an IME or surveillance, just playing around with that because you have excess house money to play with is, is a nicer outcome at the early stage of a worker's comp claim. But I think that's the easy half of it, right? You know, this is the recovery, let's go get it, let's get it early, let's get it often, and let's get it so that you have the money before you make your settlement decision, right? I think the harder uh, push or a really question from uh, our clients on loss transfer is, when we know that the $50,000 has little exceptions built in so that, you know, third-party plaintiff attorneys don't just come and get 50 off the top, right? So take us through maybe one example of something that would be within the first 50K, but is still recoverable under Section 29, because that is something that is very, very rarely seen uh, from third-party plaintiffs. They just think we're going to get 50 off the top.
1: Right, so uh, the the instance where this will arise the most often is when you haven't paid fifty yet, because at a certain point, if you're trying to get to the fifty k threshold, you can't on one, uh, you you know where I'm going with this, the indemnity up to two thousand per month, you can't claim that it's what you've paid in excess of two thousand dollars per month is not in lieu of first party benefits, but then tack it on to try and reach the fifty k threshold. So this really applies principally where there's fifty thousand dollars or less. Aid, but it's it's an important caveat. So we have, let's say, somebody's getting paid, you know, near the uh, maximum total disability. Right, they're getting nine hundred dollars per month. So we have, uh, or nine hundred dollars per week. Right. Right. So we have thirty six hundred dollars being paid monthly in indemnity benefits, law first party benefits, and no fault only covers two thousand dollars per month for the first three years following the date of loss. So two thousand dollars per month, great. You don't have a section twenty nine lien on that. But what you do have a Section 29 lean on is the latter $1,600, almost half of the amount for the amounts you've paid in excess of $2,000. And along that same line, really the thing to just keep in mind is, one, are your payments in lieu of first-party benefits? Because that's literally the language in Section 29 That's where this carve-out is coming from. And two, did it arise from the user operation, that's one component, of a motor vehicle, that's another component, in the state of New York, that's another component. And if it falls outside of the definition for no-fault coverage or for the uh, first-party benefits, it's not subject to the 50K carve-out.
0: Right, so let's attack some of those to to give really the listeners some clear decision-making points here, right? The first thing you mentioned was the $2,000 per month in indemnity benefits or wage replacement, right? So um, the math behind that is if you have a claimant who has a high average weekly wage that would lead to a uh, rate such as the statutory max rate or maybe even a little lower, you used 900 per week as an example and it's a round number, you multiply it by four weeks out of, in the month to get 3,600 in wage replacement, right? But if no-fault law actually uh, carves out 2,000 a month, then what you're saying is that 1,600, is recoverable under section twenty nine, right? You also said that it's primarily a vehicle to be used for claims where you haven't reached the fifty K threshold yet. Right. Can you explain a little bit about that and why that wouldn't apply to a claim that let's say has seventy five K in prior paid?
1: Well so it's it's all about it it ends up being the same net result. So this is this is where we're really gonna get into two oh one, possibly three (laughs) oh one. Uh, level concepts, but but the way to think about it is this. You're going to this third party, You say you've only paid $40,000 in comp, right? The third party attorney goes, ha ha, it's a motor vehicle accident. You don't have a lien, $50,000 carve out. I got you and you go, well, no, no. This guy was making $3,000 a week. He's getting paid the statutory max, $1,600 or thereabouts per month is not subject to the carve out. Well, you cannot on one hand say that I have a lien on that 1600 and then also calculate it, add that number in to calculate when you reach $50,000, right? You're arguing it's not part of first party benefits and then adding it to the amount of first party benefits to reach the threshold. Right. So it ends up being the same amount in that situation, if that makes any sense.
0: Right, I think in essence that, let's say you have a 75k prior pay, like, you know, the example I gave, if you're able to take out that 1600 a month, it's just going to be replaced with other monies to get to $50,000, right? right. Whereas below $50,000, you're getting an efficiency save because it's not being replaced with other monies for the plaintiff's attorney to move up to 50.
1: Right, because if, if you think about it conceptually, once, uh, if those payments are coming from another source, that 1600 once you hit 50000 anything paid over that is Section 29. So it's Section 29 on the $1,600 you are paying in excess of $2,000 per month, Immediately or it's section 29 when you pay over fifty thousand dollars, but you can't say this is not in lieu of first party benefits, and then add it to your total of first party benefits to reach the threshold.
0: Right, and for anyone out there listening that is still, uh, it's a little bit complicated, right? The you know the math and, and and the statute the statute being applied here. If anybody out there has a case where prior pay is under fifty k and there's a big loss transfer argument with this scenario applied, meaning more than two thousand indemnity benefits paid in a month, let us know. We'll give you the math for your case to make it under be understood a lot more uh, easily because it's not an easy, it's not an easy thing. It's it's rather difficult to understand from a a global ad hoc, uh, you know, 30,000 feet above. You really need to actually learn it with, with a case to make it stick. But as far as your other examples, right, I think the biggest one, you know, in my opinion is when the motor vehicle accident is outside of New York State, right? So it's very clear cut. We know where the accident takes place. So what happens if P- third-party plaintiff atter- plaintiff's attorney comes to me as adjuster, as risk professional, saying your New York comp claim has to take 50000 off the top of your Section 29 reimbursement, but you find out that the motor vehicle accident took place in Connecticut or New Jersey. What, what, what do we do then? Right, so
1: there's a couple of cases out there on this, and, and I mentioned it uh, during the inaugural Major Mondays webinar. This is one of my absolute favorites in terms of, uh, in terms of legal exceptions. Uh, you can have a New York claimant, a New York employer, New York third party defendants, it, 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 another New York driver as the at fault driver, a, a third party claim in New York. Everything about this could be New York, except for the fact that the accident happened over state lines. And what's great is uh, there's the McHenry case and then the one that specifically for New Jersey, o e versus Green, uh, it literally says New York does not purport to regulate the no-fault laws of another state. So in other words, no-fault applies in New York under Article 51 for accidents arising from the use or operation of a motor vehicle in the state of New York. You're outside the state of New York? Forget about it. Now, I should be very clear here. That does not mean that the Supreme Court in the third-party action will not adopt another state's analogous no-fault provision and say, "Well, okay, there is a carve-out under this, so you know that that's going to apply to that's going to apply to this settlement." But uh, by and large, it's basically your your free ticket out of the fifty-thousand-dollar carve-out, and you will see that very frequently. It seems so cut and dry. There's a New York workers' compensation claim. Everything about it's New York. But the accident happened on the wrong side of the hollander lincoln tunnel very easy very easy way out of the 50k carve out it's,
0: it's a nice little uh, exception because from the cop perspective when faced with new york or new jersey a claimant is going to pick new york right because they can have more control over the medical uh the rates of compensation and the ways to get the compensation are much more lenient and claimant friendly so using that leverage to be faced with an opportunity to secure a better bottom line or better recovery in Section 29 negotiation is definitely to our client's benefit. So, do you think of anything else? You know, we talked about $2,000 in indemnity per month and an out-of-state motor vehicle accident. Any kind of uh, 201 level issues that maybe you discussed in your webinar that we can flesh out today so
1: let's uh let's tinker around with uh the 3 year portion of the in- indemnity coverage under no fault so up to 2k per month for not more than 3 years so here's here's a good example you have a uh you have a 60 something year old claimant that that twists his knee and you know he had osteoarthritis going on beforehand and degenerative conditions and it's really just an exacerbation and he's been dealing with the pain his whole life you know he files a worker's comp claim or the the employer files a Freud because they have to and there's this claim going on and you know maybe you chuck the guy five thousand dollars for some initial PT through his employer maybe he gets two or three days off of work it's not even enough to you know to, to pass the waiting period. And so you end up with a $5,000 payment letter for the first three years of the claim.
0: And then, and then comes my slew.
1: Right, and then, and then all of a sudden he runs into his workers' comp attorney cousin who goes, oh, wait a minute, you hurt your knee and never got anything for it? You should go out there and get a scheduled loss of use award. It doesn't matter that you've now retired. It's literally just, it compensates you for loss of use. It doesn't have anything to do with the timing of when it happened. It's not wage replacement. And so, he goes after it and he goes and gets the uh goes and gets the scheduled loss of use award and then you try to assert a lien for that on his third party settlement well i should say uh that was a bad example about the twisting the knee let's say he injured his knee in in a motor vehicle accident right right well, um, yes. yeah. yeah so uh then then let's say he's at the point of this third party settlement and you're trying to assert a lien and they go well no fifty thousand dollar carve out you don't have a lien here well that schedule loss of use, which comprises most of what we've paid in workers' comp, say it's a $25,000 slew award, uh, that was paid more than three years after the date of loss. So surprise, surprise, that's not in lieu of first party benefits. And we have a full section 29 lien on that 25,000. To be clear, that first five we paid is still subject to the carve out. Right. But indemnity paid more than three years after the date of loss, is not in lieu of first party benefits. The other one, um, user operation, uh, that's another interesting one to tinker with sometimes. It can get a little hairy, it can get a little, hairy. Uh, it can get a little uh, litigious at, at points, but um, you know, one of the cases that's out there is a uh, person that dies of heat prostration in their car because the AC wasn't working. And that's not use or operation of a motor vehicle. The fact that he's sitting in a truck when he happens to die, it doesn't subject the claim to no fault. Use of equipment on a truck, uh, for instance, you know the, the truck comes with a cherry picker and it's been parked in the same location for days and you just happen to swivel the cherry picker to you know, you know fix something on, on a telephone pole and you fall off of it. Yes, that it was attached to the truck. Did it have anything to do with use or operation of a motor vehicle? Absolutely not. Uh, so that's use or operation is one of the terms you can tinker with. And then uh, I don't want to run on too long, but motor vehicle is another one. Caterpillar and crawler type equipment not included in the definition. So that's something you'll see with uh, companies on, on contracting sites. You know, the, the claimant will try to argue, well, you know, you were driving this backhoe and therefore it's subject to no fault because it's a motor vehicle, well it's not. Neither are motorcycles. So if you have a claimant that's driving a motorcycle in the course of his employment, whenever that situation may arise, uh, and he happens to skid out and get injured, that's not subject to the carve out.
0: Good, so I think we've outlined some some scenarios here where our clients can really uh, take some value, right? So the idea is loss transfer in two different ways how And two different ways how it can be used to provide value. One is actually asserting the recovery uh, intercompany loss transfer, right? And we talk about timing in that sense being do it early, do it often. As far as the exceptions to make it section 29 money, it's really the timing of the payment, right? Are we doing it early enough? And are we below 50K to take advantage of an indemnity benefit or are we over a three-year statute of limitations to now figure out we can now use this from sec- to, to Section 29 uh, and get a reimbursement that way? And then exception-wise, using uh, you know, legal application of the document to actually bring you back into Section 29, right? So almost like we're carving out of the carve-out.
1: Right. right. And, and this is just to harken back to the prior podca- podcast we did on risk transfer. This is something that you can do from intake. This is something that a competent workers' compensation defense attorney will assess the day they get the file and will keep tabs on, keep their finger on the pulse as the workers' compensation claim develops and leverage that to uh, a greater reimbursement from the third party settlement or successful recovery via loss transfer and if that entails going to arbitration, so be it. That's something that's something we do as a full service uh, recovery and
0: defense firm. Well, I think that's a great little wrap-up to today's podcast, right? So for everybody, uh, my name is Christian Cisan. For Christopher Major, we're reminding you to defend from day one.